Please turn with me to Isaiah chapter 25. We continue studying in the book of Isaiah. We will be looking at this chapter in its entirety. There is a feast on a mountain, and so how often would you get to call a sermon the mountain feast? And so why not? I'm not good with sermon titles anyway. So there you go. The mountain feast is what we'll be talking about today before we do so. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his help with it. Lord Jesus, as we come to you, we pray that you would help us with your word. We are a people who can read these things and get easily confused. We get easily frustrated too because we want to see you, we want to do your will. And we might read a difficult passage and we think, what does this have to do with me? Lord, we pray that you would show us what it has to do with us. Show us our sin and convict us of that sin. And Lord, we pray that you would lead us more and closer to you. We pray this in your name. Amen. So as I read this passage, we're going to... As we go through this, we're going to see a couple of songs. We see Isaiah singing a song, then we see the people of God singing a song together. And these songs are praising the Lord. And it made me think about um, what modern worship music and kind of the purpose and how worship has changed even over the course of the last 50 years or so. And one of the goals of modern worship is to cause people to feel a certain way, for better or worse. And I'm not making necessarily a negative comment on on feeling. It isn't that people haven't felt music before at all. It's, It's not the case at all. But the draw of modern worship music is its simplicity. Back in the 70s and the 80s, there was a movement called Vineyard Church. And the Vineyard Church, kind of one of their things was making worship that people could sing and understand. And that was really one of their main calling cards. Uh, they they basically created the worship music industry. Every Christian re- Christian recording artist nowadays has a quote unquote worship album. Um, it's different from the hymns that people used to sing. Sing simpler ideas, simpler words, much sort of simple songs, as opposed to singing about raising your Ebenezer. You sing this these courses that are very simple, very very easy ideas. You kind of repeat the same thing over and over again for effect. And again, it's not a criticism of modern worship. Not that I'm afraid of criticizing it. Um, But that's just to say that music is designed more and more for this emotive kind of response, bringing people into this heart of worship, as you've kind of heard that said. It's less thinking involved, more feeling involved. And again, for better or worse can be done very well, I think. People who now use the word worship almost exclusively are talking about singing as opposed to anything else, which the more traditional sense kind of encompasses this whole aspect of worship and everything that we do in worship. And if there's one thing that I think that we as Reformed Christians even often miss the mark on is our sense of feeling as we come into worship and, and feeling the emotions feeling the closeness of God, being excited or even emotive concerning what has been done and concerning His attributes. And so I think in some ways we could borrow a lot from that. 
In our text today, Isaiah is kind of having this vineyard worship moment. He is seeing the greatness of the Lord, and he's seeing all of the Lord's accomplishments set before him, and he just can't help himself in his expression of worship. He is seemingly overcome with emotion as we read through this and as he writes, even though he is writing about the end of the world and about destruction, about the, the death of most of the inhabitants on the, on the world and their eternal punishment. He is singing in praises to the Lord. I think there's a lot for us to learn here. So many times in our worship to God, we spend time telling Him what we're going to do and what we're, how we're going to live. Not that that's wrong. We talk about our devotion to Him as opposed to His devotion to us. Many modern worship songs won't even talk about the name of Jesus. They just kind of use a pronoun in His place. And it's kind of sad. The subject of most of the lines of this song of the worship is the worshiper rather than God Himself. As we come to the text today, we're going to see God at front and center in this uh, and his people as the beneficiaries of his grace and his mercy. And so with that, let's look at the text. I want to consider three main ideas from it. First, the song of Isaiah, then the feast on the mountain, and then the song of the people. And so let's look at the word, Isaiah chapter 25. Please stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's word. Starting at verse 1. O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name. For you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and sure. For you have made the city a heap and fortified city a ruin. The foreigner's palace is a city no more, and it will never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong peoples will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will fear you. For you have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm against a wall, like a heat in a dry place. You subdue the noise of the foreigners as heat by the shade of a cloud, so the song of the ruthless is put down. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, a rich rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people will be, will, he will take away from all the earth, for the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God, we have waited for him, that he might save us. This is the Lord, we have waited for him, let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. For the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain, and Moab shall be trampled down in his place as straw is trampled down in a dunghill. And he will spread out his hands in the midst of it, as a swimmer spreads his hands out to swim. But the Lord will lay low his pompous pride together with the skill of his hands, and the high fortifications of his walls he will bring down, lay low, and cast to the ground, to the dust. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. 
So remember the last two weeks, we've been talking about this apocalypse of Isaiah, how he's been given a glimpse of the Lord's uh, judgment in the last days of the Lord and how he is, the Lord is revealing to him or unveiling. And we talked about how the word apocalypse meant that unveiling. Remember, most of the earth during this time, if you read through verse 24 or chapter 24, was, was snuffed out. Even the earth itself was damaged. In the end, there's a remnant of people left. And those people stood together in praise and worship of the Lord in that last day. We even saw how the Son of God, Jesus Christ, was there in their midst as the light of the world. The sun and the moon were put to shame, is what it said. This week, we'll see the aftermath of that last day. And it's a happy one, as the people of God are seen together feasting. And so with that, let's look at the first point, the song of Isaiah. Look with me again at verses 1 and 2. O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name. For you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and sure. So here's where, this is where I drew from for my introduction. Isaiah is obviously in this high emotional state. He is seeing what has gone on around him. He has seen the, the end of the game come. And he stands with the Lord himself and with the people of God. And he's just overwhelmed with this whole sense of what's around him. When he sees the vision of things to come, it's hardly, he's hardly able to contain himself with his excitement. We'll be looking even in Revelation 5 today in Sunday school, this same kind of idea that John is experiencing as he sees these things unfold. Isaiah kind of breaks the fifth wall, as it were. And he, as, as we read through this book, he does that quite a bit. He kind of talks to the reader even though the Lord is giving him these prophecies and these things to say, the Lord, he kind of breaks the fifth wall and says, saying to the reader, and here you have that where he's just singing a song of praise for what he sees. Here, there's no sadness at all, but complete elation. Remember a couple of weeks ago, he kind of said he was sad for the people as he looked around him. He was really sad for his own people. But here, he's excited because he sees the plans of the Lord. He sees what the Lord is going to do. He says, I will exalt you. I will praise your name. He quickly gives us a reason for doing that. It's because of his greatness. For, the, for you have done wonderful things. The word wonderful here should probably be translated miraculous. Would be a better translation for it. The root word here is when God describes what he was doing in Egypt when he gave, when he sent the plagues. These were not just cool things that happened. These were miraculous signs that the Lord was doing. This isn't just a great thing. This is something that only God can do. And so he's saying, you have done miraculous things, O Lord. Things that no one could even fathom. Just as an aside, just like we want to talk about ourselves oftentimes in our worship, we also want to limit God's greatness to the things that He's done for us. 
And that's not exactly what we should be doing. Sure, He has done great things for us, and absolutely we should never stop thanking Him for the great things that He has done for us. However, what has Isaiah completely starstruck here is the idea that God works miracles. That God helped him to see these wonderful things that he was doing. Not that God did this one great thing for him one time in his life. The wonderful things that God is doing in Isaiah's view, again, are the things that only God can do. In fact, these are things that set him apart from anyone and everyone. These are the things that make him holy God. We praise him because he is not like us at all. Thankfully, he's not. Infinitely more holy than we could ever imagine. At the mention of his name, people bow down. So do his enemies. We see that in the the verses following. Verse 2. For you have made the city a heap, the fortified city a ruin. Verse 3, Therefore strong peoples will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will fear you. These cities that once reviled God now bow down to Him, though it's too late at this point in history since history is over. He has made the cities a heap. The entire world is a ruin. The cities have no choice but to worship Him because He is good. We see that goodness on display there in verse 4. You have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in His distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade in the heat. He is so good that He takes care of the poor and needy. He watches over them in time of distress. He gives them shelter, otherwise they would receive harm. He subdues those who aren't His, but He takes care of those who are. And we see that over and over in Scripture. As we come to Him in worship, there is no more important thing for us to consider what He is and who He is and what He has done for us. The center of our focus in our worship should not be us and what we're planning to do and the words that we're singing that should be the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and what they have done and what they are doing and who they are. Without them, we can't worship. All of our worship should be for them and about them. And that brings us to the second point, the feast on the mountain. Look with me at verse 6. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich full of rich food full of marrow of aged wine well refined if you consider all the passages that we've looked at in the book of isaiah how many times have we talked about famine and what's going to happen to these nations they're not going to have any food they're going to waste away there's going to be drought and all these horrible things now we're talking about something that is in stark contrast to that here we have a feast and there seems to be all the best food there all the the rich food and the fat from the bone for for all of his peoples. And again, this isn't for all people is what it says there. For all peoples, this isn't for every person that's ever lived. This is more so that all the peoples of the world, all the types, all the nations, all the races, because we obviously know that there was only a remnant left 
from this event. However, we know from the rest of Scripture that people from every tribe, tongue, and nation will be there at the Supper of the Lamb. So all the peoples are there feasting together. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 19. You see a picture of this. Revelation chapter 19. I'll start reading at verse 6. This idea of the marriage feast of the Lamb. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder. Seems like we have some similarities there. Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and the bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, For the linen was the righteous deeds of the saints. And an angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, who you hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Here we have this incredible picture from the book of Revelation that is really just showing us what we see here in Isaiah 25. This feast, those who were left on earth after the earth was destroyed, after the unrighteous and the wicked were taken away, we have this people left and they're feasting with the Lord. But there isn't just feasting taking place here. Notice what's happening in verse 7. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He is removing something from those who are in attendance. The veil that is something that has been over them since the creation of the world. We read in verse 8 that this veil is death. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all the faces. And the reproach of His people He will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. Christ claimed victory over death at the resurrection. And that victory is completely realized here in this scene. Among the people of God, there will be no more death in that day, in in the new heavens and the new earth. Therefore, there will be no cause for pain and sorrow. So again, turn with me to Revelation chapter 7. This is one of my favorite passages in Scripture. And as you see this same picture of the multitude there, Revelation chapter 7, starting at verse 9. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. 
And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their face before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes? And where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation, for they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And this song mimics a lot of what we're reading in Isaiah 25. Therefore they they are before the throne of God, and they serve Him day and night in His temple. And And He sits on the throne, will shelter them in His presence. They shall hunger no more, neither shall they thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and He will guide them to the springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Again, what a fantastic picture of what the Lord does for His people. How God has given victory to His people. Until that day, we will have sorrow on this earth. It's a fact. As we go through our prayer requests every Sunday, we, we hear those times of sorrow and those needs that cause sorrow. I think sorrow is one thing that causes us to long for our heavenly home even more. And in that way, it has a purpose, a good purpose. But we shouldn't allow it to overtake us, which is very easy to do on this earth because we see sorrow as the end we don't keep this in view the fact that one day we're going to be with jesus and he's going to wipe away every tear from our eyes imagine isaiah in his own day imagine seeing this vision that the lord has given him of what those last days are going to be like and then being brought back into reality Having to live with the fact that your country is constantly turning against God, the one that delivered them, the one that did wonderful things for them. And they're probably going to turn against you, which they did, turn against Isaiah for his preaching. This was a hard reality that Isaiah faced, but it didn't cause him to turn away from his task, and he continued it into his own death. For us, we must keep anchored in the truth of God's promises to us. Every time someone I know passes away or someone receives bad news, I oftentimes return back to this passage in Revelation 7 because it reminds me one day that those tears will be wiped away by the Lamb of God Himself. He will be there to do that. While this earth does have tribulation, one day it will be numbered among those whom the elder said these have escaped that tribulation among those at the great marriage feast of the Lamb. And that's the hopeful message that we have for unbelievers as well, that there is life beyond this one. It's infinitely better than anything that we could ever hope for on this earth. An unbeliever once said to me, yeah, well, that's, that's escapism. He says, you're not facing reality. You're just trying to escape this earth. And I said to him, well... Your reality says that you return to the ground and then nothing. And yet, you love your wife. You love your kids. 
You work really hard at your job. But one day you'll have great-grandkids that won't even remember your first name. That's your reality. That's the reality that you're facing. What do you mean that I'm escaping? Our reality is much better. We have the Lord. We can show the lost world, brothers and sisters, that the life beyond this one is much better than what we have. And everything that we live and everything that we do must be affected by the reality that we are one day going to have. We must go about our relationships as if they will last for an eternity. We must go about our vocation as if it pays eternal dividends, because it does. We must love people today because that matters for forever. That brings us to the last point, the song of the people. Verse 9. And it will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for Him that He might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for Him. Let us be glad and rejoice in His salvation. This is the song of the people of now whom Isaiah identifies himself as one. Again, the focus is on God, on the salvation of God, the people rejoicing in this salvation of God alone. And then they say, we have waited on Him that He might save us. As you go through the the Old Testament and even the New, this is a very common theme of waiting on the Lord. What does that mean? Well, I think Jesus gives us a parable that is very helpful, and it's a parable that we're all familiar with, the parable of the the ten virgins who were told to wait on the bridegroom, and they were to have lamp in their oil, and they were to have lamp in their or oil in their lamp until the bridegroom came. And some of them, five of them, had enough oil to wait, and the other five did not. And they weren't able to wait. It's really easy to wait on something for a short amount of time. When you're younger, I know it's especially hard, but it's just for a short amount of time, it's really easy to wait. But then things start to get a little, you know, boring. The word that I hear a whole lot nowadays, boring. So much of modern Christianity has become the idea of how do I feel rather than a long haul of our lives as Christians. Believers will go from one church to the next in order to see which one makes them feel the best. Or they will read this book or go to that conference in order to feel good, in order to regain that feeling that they once had. Because the world is tough, and if Christianity isn't something that's going to make them feel better all the time, then they're going to have to find something else that does that. It's like the friend who won't commit until they find out there's something or nothing better to do. We all know that friend. It's like not wanting to wait on the Lord. Unfortunately, some people treat Christianity that way. But when the bridegroom shows, it will be too late. Even when it's hard, we must wait on the Lord. He will said he, he said He will come back. He said that there will be life everlasting and that He will wipe away every tear from every eye. And so what must we do as believers? We must believe it. We must work at our belief. It isn't to say that we work at our salvation at all. You know, I'm not saying that. But we have to work at our belief. When... Jesus healed 
a son who this man's son who had a demon the the Jesus said do you believe that I can heal him and Jesus or the man said Jesus I believe help my unbelief we must constantly wait on the Lord more and more and we must work at this belief that we have verses 10 through 12 of Isaiah 25 they show us what happens to the proud nation. He brings them down to dust. The prideful man or woman looks at what the Lord says He will do and they said, no, I don't need that. Perhaps they only pretend to need Him or they continue to act as if His promises aren't true. But let us be ones who live as if the promises of God are true in our daily lives. For the unbeliever here, make sure you understand what's going on and I want you to understand this. This is the last days in which the Lord will be with His people. To those who look at His free offer of mercy and grace, the free offer, the free offer of the gospel and say, no, I got this on my own. Well, in the last day, the Father will look at them and says, all right, let's take a look at your sins then on your own. And you will pay for your sins for all eternity. Rather than do that, turn to Jesus who offered Himself as a ransom for many, paying the sins of His people by dying on the cross. Call upon His name and be saved. So in conclusion, for the believer, let us worship God for who He is, for the wonderful things that He has done. Let us love the world because the day is coming when the world will be no more. So let us love them so that they can see Jesus. Let's go to Him in prayer. Our Father, as we come to You, we are thankful for Your Word that is, that is true, that is plain, even when we are not. So Lord, we are thankful. pray that You would teach us, that You would grow us to be closer to You. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.